Syzygy, episode 8, Frozen Dunes of Pluto. And welcome back to another episode of Syzygy. This is episode number 8. In this episode, we're going to be talking about what used to be planet number 9, And then it kind of got a bit demoted. When I was growing up, we always had nine planets and Pluto was the last of them. But poor old Pluto, it's not a planet anymore. So we'll be talking about that. And in particular, some really interesting news that's come from Pluto really, really recently. The fact that it's not quite a simple little lump of rock that we thought it was. It's pretty complicated. Joining me as ever on the microphone is Dr. Emily Brunston. Hi, Emily. Hello, hello. So Pluto, what's been going on? What have we just learnt about this far-flung sphere of rock orbiting the sun? Well, it's really exciting. Far from being this kind of cold, dead lump of ice that's just drifting out there in the far reaches of space. Which is what you'd sort of expect, right? I mean, it's it's really far away. It's a long way out. And it's not even, I mean, we'll get to this in a minute, but it's not even big enough to be proper planet. It's It's sort of, you know, demoted. So we always just kind of assumed it was kind of dull but it's not no No, it's very exciting in fact and we've got evidence now that we've got dynamic processes going on on the surface of pluto now dynamic processes that's a fancy way of saying there's stuff happening down there on the surface yeah real time things are happening and we can see that because we can see these uh, dunes of methane which are formed on the surface of pluto which is really cool because not only does that mean like to get dunes not only do you need to have methane on the surface able to be pushed around, but you've got to have an atmosphere and, and winds. I mean, winds, dunes yeah. come from, on Earth, sand dunes come from sand being pushed around by the wind. So Pluto's got wind, which yeah. is cool. Stuff moving around on its surface. Yeah, who knew? Okay, so we're going to be talking about that today. But before we get there, I think there is a really large, rocky elephant in the room, sort of a planet size or maybe slightly smaller than planet sized elephant in the room, which is Pluto's status. And frankly, I'm amazed it's taken us eight episodes to get here because amongst a certain number of people who do follow, uh, you know, astronomical things, the demotion of Pluto from planet to dwarf planet was a big deal. And there are a lot, of, a lot of people who are still really quite bent out of shape about this. So let's back up and talk about Pluto, the history of the planet, and we'll work our way up to that particular elephant. Emily, when did we first learn that Pluto was there? Well, we found Neptune because we knew that from orbital mechanics, there was another planet that had to be out there in the solar system. And then after finding Neptune and starting to observe it for a while, this is in the late 1800s, Neptune was doing something a little bit weird. It was wobbling around a little bit in a way that it shouldn't have. I mean, when you say wobbling around, I mean, it's not like people spotted it and you could see it wobbling around in real time. Neptune's orbiting very, you know, it takes a really long time to go around the sun. If you observe its orbit for long enough, then you can tell that that orbit's not what you'd expect yeah, from what we yeah. can see. Something was disturbing Neptune. So there had to be something else out there. Yes. And yeah. that something? 
was well it was eventually found to be pluto but it took us a long time to find it it was a real um planet hunt if you like so how long i mean so we started looking for it in the early 1900s um very famously percival lovell started um well he founded his own observatory and started hunting for this planet Uh, really really i guess um frustratingly in some ways he actually kind of did find it but he didn't see it for what it was at the time so what do you mean by that what did he what did he see so they made some mathematical predictions about where it should be in the sky and they were um, photographing those parts of the sky and it was actually found when they went back into those photographs that it was there at the time. Oh, right. This so is in nineteen. Just missed it. Yeah, 1915. Unfortunately, Percival died in 1916. So they didn't, he didn't actually see the discovery of his um, planet X, he was calling it. But um, they employed another uh, astronomer a little bit later on. And in 1930, he managed to find it. This is a, a guy by the name of uh, Tom Bau. Right. And that's, so that's, that's several decades it's taken to find this. Yeah, thing. yeah. It was a tricky thing to nail down, right? Mm. And it's so tricky because it is so small and so far away from the sun. Yeah, I mean, it's tiny, isn't it? It's really tiny. You know, it's smaller than Mercury? It's, it's, uh, well, well, it's Mercury, smaller than yeah. the moon, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you're looking at something that's about the third the volume of the moon. Right, right. And the moon is already considerably smaller than the Earth. So we're talking a... You know, quite a small lump of stuff. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's quite staggering they found it at all, yeah, given how far well, away it exactly, is. Exactly, yeah. And it was only because of this relationship that it had with Neptune that it was able to be found. In fact, it has this, what we call resonance with its orbit. So every time that Neptune goes around twice, Pluto goes around three times. Right. And so that particular orbital resonance, that sort of locking of the two planets, is a telltale sign. When you're looking at at Neptune, you're looking at one of those pairs, it's pretty clear there's something else there. That's what they saw in the wobble that you you talked about. And Pluto even comes inside of Neptune's orbit at some point. Yeah, it is. It's got a really weird orbit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It uh, it comes inside Neptune sometimes, and it's tilted quite a lot, isn't it? Yes, yeah. So it's not in this nice um, disk which all the other planets are in. And this you could kind of think of might be a reason why it wouldn't be called a planet if it's got this weird orbit that's an ellipse instead of a circle, if it's not behaving like the other planets. It's already looking a little bit dodgy, let's that, face it. Yeah, but those aren't actually anything to do with why Pluto right. is not well, a planet. Well, we'll get there in a second, but I'm actually curious. So, so where did the name come from? Why Pluto? Well, they just, early 1930s, they um, had an idea of uh, what they might want to call this thing. Planet X, sounding very science fiction-y, but I mean, that's not going to last really, is it? Yeah, well, and we have a kind of a convention that we want to sort of stick to in terms of our planets. We've named them mostly after gods, so kind of makes sense. Yeah. We should name something else um, that we found after another god. And in fact, this um, the, the name Pluto was suggested by an 11-year-old girl in Oxford, uh, Percival Lovell was, and the observatory were in the US. And uh, she suggested Pluto, which happened to have two really nice components to it. So Pluto is the uh, god of the underworld. So right. It's all kind of very dark and mysterious and um, maybe cold as well. But um, Pluto, P-L, also makes uh, Percival Lovell's initials. Oh, I hadn't hadn't even thought of that. Which was really, really nice. Nice one. So the astronomical symbol to this day is a P, uh, capital P, and then you make the bottom of the P into an L. So it's two letters put together. Do you know, I've actually seen that before and I had never noticed that. 
Well done, Chris. Nice work. Um, <laughs> so hang on. They were in – so Lovell was in America – how did an 11-year-old girl in Oxford end up naming it? When, um, what's the story it, it there? It was a story with um, her father was um, a scientist and a, and a philosopher and involved with another person. So it's kind of a uh, he knew someone else who knew someone else who knew someone else. Right, um, right. Then, and someone went, hey, that's a really good idea. Yeah. Pass yeah. that one on. So it's kind of almost like the modern-day um, systems where you might have name a, name a star mm. or name a, name a such and such a thing competition. All right. So it was discovered in the 30s. Um, and then quite a few years later, something happened. A bunch of astronomers got together and made a decision. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, in the 1990s, we started to get a lot better at discovering things in the outer edges of our solar system. And we found quite a few things that were kind of similar and in some cases bigger than Pluto. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's fine. More planets, that's okay. So we could sort of start just tacking them on, have 10 planets, 11 planets, 12 planets. Um, but there was a little bit of a concern as to where was this going to end? How many, <laughs> how, how many often do we want to rewrite our children's books? <laughs> exactly. And I mean, it's, it's hard enough to remember nine. Yeah. You know, if we're getting up into the, the several dozen, that's getting a bit ridiculous. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? There's more to it than just, well, we don't want to have too many planets because we like small numbers. Well, no, but we didn't. We never had a formal definition of what is a planet. Ah, yeah. See, <laughs> therein lies a bit of a problem, because if you haven't got a formal definition or at least a consistent one, then anything else that comes along is it? Is it, is it not? Well, at some point, you've got to draw a line. So how how did that get resolved? Well, I remember also that the 1990s was this period where we were discovering planets for the first time in other. Solar right. systems. So, so added pressure to yeah, say, we really well, didn't need this good definition. Yeah. What are these things? What are, these what things? are we calling them and why? So, um, the International Astronomical Union in 2006 came up with three criteria which you're going to have to hit if you want to be a planet, at least in our solar system. So, you can go through each of the three. They're pretty okay. straightforward. Yep. Number one. So, number one is you have to orbit the sun. Fair enough. Yeah, I think no one that that's that's pretty un, uncontroversial. Yeah, I think okay. no one would argue with that. Yeah. So even though we have like moons of Jupiter and Saturn and so on, which are really big and kind of look like planets in their own right, they don't go around the sun. They go around another planet. So they're moons. Okay. So going around the sun, and of course Pluto goes around the sun. Bing tick tick. tick yeah. Bing tick for Pluto. Yep. Yep. The next thing is kind of like a size limitation. And the way that that's defined is rather than saying you must be this big to be a planet, then um, the – because different planets can be made of different things. Sure. We wanted to have a definition that was a bit more um, all-encompassing and inclusive. Yeah, I mean, you've got the rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Pluto, and you've got gaseous planets, which are really big. Mm. You've got your Jupiter and your Saturn and your, your Uranus and Neptune is mm-hmm. a gassy planet mm-hmm. as well. Um, and yeah, so in order to, to have something which, okay, let's not worry about exactly what you're made out of. What's the definition in terms of size? So the technical term is there's enough hydrostatic equilibrium. Okay, that is technical. So <laughs> yeah. breaking that one down. And basically, are you big enough to become a sphere? Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Right, and so there's a distinction there because... You know, not so far away, we've got the asteroid belt, which has got some fairly large chunks of rock in it. Yeah. But they're not big enough to form spherical 
planety things. No, They're they just look a bit like rock. potatoes, yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So potato, no, sphere, yes. Yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. So you've got to have enough gravity for that to happen to become a nice sphere. Yeah. And again, tick for Pluto, Indeed. right? Because Pluto yep. is round. Yes, it is. Yeah. 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 All right. So two for two. Yep. And so now, it all hinges on number three. <laughs> Here's the crunch. You must have cleared your neighborhood of other material. Right. Cleared your neighborhood. So what does that mean? So in your orbit, as you go around, there can't be lots of other bits, either small, lots of small bits or even some other big bits that you're kind of competing with in your orbit. So you've got to be the dominant thing in your orbit yep. or at least, yeah, clearing it out. You know, if you're the biggest thing going around – over long periods of time, everything else is either going to be bashed into or swung out of the way by gravity. Hmm. So in number three then, I'm guessing Pluto fell over that last hurdle. Yeah, and we can actually put some numbers on this, which can be quite illuminating. So you take the Earth. The Earth is 1.7 million times more massive than everything else in its orbit. Okay, so that's significant. So if you're talking about Earth dominating its orbit... You know, 1.7 million, million times, times bigger. Okay, I'd call that dominant. Yeah. Fair yeah, enough. Well done, dominant. Earth. Yep. Pluto, Pluto is 0. 0.07 times what the mass of everything else in its orbit. Ah. So it's actually smaller than the mass of everything else right. that's there. That's, that's a bit embarrassing yeah. if you're Pluto. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that there are other things which individually are larger than Pluto in its orbit. That's not what you're saying. No, although there's things that are not too far away. Right. That, that are. <laughs> but you're saying if you add everything else up around yeah. you know, in its neighborhood, all of that stuff is actually, you know, outweighs Pluto. It can it can outvote it and say, no, nah, you're not a planet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rats. Even one of Pluto's own moons, Charon, is it's quite significantly close to being the size of Pluto. It's but it's not. It's a bit smaller. But it's so big compared to Pluto itself that the center of mass, which is the point that both objects go around, is not inside Pluto itself. Yeah. Okay, that and that is a bit embarrassing. Yeah. You know, I mean, the moon goes around the Earth, but their center of mass, their, their center of rotation is inside the Earth. And so you can legitimately claim that the moon is going around the Earth and not the other way around. You're saying Pluto and Charon, yes. one of its moons, that's not the case. They're no. going around each other. They're yeah. going around a common point that's outside of Pluto. It's almost a binary yeah. system. Yeah. So that is a bit embarrassing. And I can kind of see how Pluto's falling on the wrong side of the of the law on this one. So we can also, of course, turn this around. And actually, Pluto in some ways got promoted because it got um, changed from being probably the least important planet in its category to being definitely the most important dwarf planet. Yeah, I'm not. I'm guessing that the Pluto fans found that as a bit of a, you know, that that's really not going to satisfy them. But if yeah, you're a dwarf that's... planet specialist and you've suddenly got this amazing new planet in your classification, that'd be quite exciting. So there are like a half a dozen people going, "Yay, we got Pluto!" and everyone else is going, "Hmm, that's not fair." <laughs> Consolation perhaps, prize perhaps, for the Pluto perhaps. fans. Okay, all right, but it did. I mean, it created this massive, massive amount of concern from Pluto fans, which. For those of us who are outside astronomy, I can kind of see it because I grew up with Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. Pluto's number nine. And it's, you know, those are the planets. And so to have one of them taken away is a bit odd. On the other hand, I, I can get it. 
you know, mm-hmm. things change. Why was there, and still is to this day, such consternation over Pluto's status? Why is it so controversial? Is it just people don't like change? Well, a bit of, there's a few things. I think emotional responses can be a bit overweighed in some situations. That's not to say they're not important, actually. Having an, an emotional response to science is a good thing, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's you, not you know, a bad you care, thing. You care about it. Um, but and we needed to make this definition, and perhaps it wasn't the best definition. Some um, planetary scientists still disagree, actually, with this classification scheme. But probably what we've ended up doing is stumbling upon a really good set of criteria, although maybe the method we'd got there wasn't actually quite um, like how do you how do you quite mean quite straightforward well maybe we sort of accidentally got to the right nut answer rather than through a systematic process of um, right. investigation so are you are you suggesting that maybe a few people who are uh, frustrated about this decision got their noses a bit bent out of shape by the way that this was done that Perhaps, maybe people yeah. felt a bit railroaded or they weren't given enough input or something along those lines yeah so politics basically a little bit yeah Yay. yeah yeah um but you know the Kuiper belt which is this area of the outer solar system it sort of runs from about 30 times the distance that earth is from the sun so 30 times as far away as we are to 50 times you know it's pretty far away this is actually a really interesting place and in some ways this whole demotion of Pluto shone a bit of a light on this really interesting part of our solar system that has really interesting bits in it. I mean, Eris, for example, was one of these planets, well, maybe what's a dwarf planet, um, that's actually bigger than Pluto by mass out there in this Kuiper belt. And we're talking well out beyond Pluto's Pluto's orbit. Not too far from Pluto. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, or lots of lots of other objects which are at similar resonances with Neptune as Pluto is. It's heaps of stuff out there. There's more than a thousand things in this Kuiper belt that we've found so far. So, you know, we know a lot more perhaps about our outer solar system than we ever did before. Well, definitely than we ever did before. So maybe the, the focus on Pluto and, and the, the controversy around this decision kind of helped extend our view out from you know the the inner nine or eight as it is now um to say well the solar system is much more interesting than just that so let's put the whole pluto thing down for a second and let's go and have a look at all this stuff out here it's really really cool yeah and it's still really important to the inner solar system where we live we um we think that most comets come from this area of our solar system Possibly um, it's a reservoir for water, organic molecules, all sorts of things sort of buried out there in the deep, dark depths of our solar system. All right. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess Pluto fans can take a little bit of heart from that. That, all right, not a planet, but the the coolest and most interesting of the dwarf planets. Let's go with that. King of the dwarfs. We'll, we'll do that. And it was still important enough to send a space probe out to. Yeah. So which probe was that? This is New Horizons. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Horizons was launched in 2006. Uh, did a little bit of a Jupiter flyby, but took nearly 10 years to get out to Pluto. Well, it's a long way. It's a very long way. I mean, even getting to Jupiter is impressive, but it, we're talking a lot further than that. Yeah. So it's a long time years. when you're an astronomer waiting for yeah. these <laughs> <laughs> results to come. But when it got out there... It actually found that Pluto was a was a very interesting place. Oh, we saw these gorgeous photographs as New Horizon approached Pluto. So this was um, July 2015. 
couple of years ago. But I remember when those images came out. Yeah. Uh, just you saw this this little icy lump in a completely well, you know, to, to excuse the pun, a new light. Yeah. I mean it. The, the best images we had before that, I don't know whether they were from Hubble or what telescope, but they were literally these pixelated, you know, you got maybe uh, 20 pixels along the side mm. and they were these grey, lumpy, pixelated images. And now we've got these incredibly detailed, actual photographic quality images of this amazing planet or dwarf planet, sorry. Yeah, it's such a revelation yeah. overnight. We can see colours, we can see surface features. You probably remember the the big release about the heart yes. on Pluto. Yes. Although the one I liked was in taking that same. So that that's a that's a surface feature which which looked like a love heart, which was kind of you know we love you Pluto. Oh, that's sweet. But the one I quite liked is someone who photoshopped um, the the Disney character Pluto on oh, top yes. of that, and it's almost a perfect fit. It's really really <laughs> good. So that's that's kind of nice. So, yeah, we've got this amazingly detailed picture of this incredibly distant, cold, icy world. But it also meant that we could have a really good look at what actually is on Pluto, what it's, what it's made up of, and what's down there. And that kind of leads us to this new paper, which has just come out, which is talking about some of the surface features and, and what that tells us about the environment on this tiny little spherical lump of rock way out on the distant edges of the of the solar system. So what do we know? What have we found out about Pluto? Well, the key thing we were trying to do with uh, New Horizons is take pictures. And we took an awful lot of pictures of uh, Pluto. And we were looking at, in this paper, that's looking at a plane called the Sputnik Planitia. Um, so it's a plane. It's actually in the heart, if you can imagine the uh, heart shape on the surface of Pluto, right. which is near the equator of Pluto. We'll put some pictures in the show notes. We'll, yeah. we'll show you where it is. It's up in the left lobe, if you like. Right. The, yeah. Okay. Um, and it looks like um, you've got some mountains on the side of it. Now, these are icy mountains. Uh, they're huge mountains going up to five kilometers in height. Wow. So, you know, they're not insignificant features yeah, yeah. themselves. And then next to that, we've got this sort of big desert plain, ice desert, right? There's no, there's not sand or rock on the surface. It's all ice. Now, when you say ice, is it ice, ice, or are you saying ice as in frozen stuff? Frozen stuff, frozen really. Stuff. Yeah, so not, yeah. not ice water. No. So what we're talking about, well, we're talking about temperatures of minus 230 degrees. Cold. Really cold. Seriously cold. So things that are gases. On One of those it. temperatures where it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about Celsius, Fahrenheit. It's just cold. It's free. It's yeah. really cold. Um, but yeah, so the gases and so on that we see on our planet in sort of normal temperatures become ice at that temperature. One of the important ones is nitrogen. Um, on Pluto and also methane. And it's methane that we think are forming these dunes on the surface of these planes. Right, these, these dunes which have been seen in this, in this um, latest, latest paper and in the, in the flyby by the, by the, by the mission. Um, like, you know, and dunes in the same sense that we see dunes here on Earth. You know, we see mm -hmm. sand dunes created by wind blowing tiny particles across the surface and they, the, the way that the the flowing air on Earth, the flowing atmosphere, interacts with these mounds of tiny particles, it means that they build up and then drops off on the other side and you have these hills and troughs and hills and troughs, often in very regular patterns. And when you look at the surface of Pluto, hang on, those are dunes. Yeah. Those are actual dunes. Yeah. And so you work backwards and think, something's making them. 
Mm. And we even see snow dunes on Earth as well, actually, in Antarctica. So, we, you know, we, we're sort of familiar with even yeah. these exotic icy processes that are going on. So, yeah, so you think, okay, there's dunes, well, you know, that's, that's nice. What, what can we actually learn from this mm -hmm. about Pluto? Well, a few things. The First of all, we can say that because there's dunes and not craters on the surface, that tells us something about the age and the times that, uh, timescales of the processes that are right. happening. Right, right. So presumably it means that these, that these things are, are forming and changing and reforming over quite short time. Yeah, yeah. So we've mentioned that things in our solar system that are old, that don't change, have lots of craters on them. So the moon or Mercury. But things that have any kind of geological processes, like the Earth has volcanoes and oceans and blah, blah, blah. The, um, we talked about the icy plumes on um, Europa, which also have similar um, changes to the surface of Europa. Um, and then the... Pro, there's no craters in this sort of area of Pluto either. So we can assume that there's something that's changing the surface, that's removing the craters of objects after they've hit. Removing them, wearing them down, filling them in, covering them yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah. So that tells us initially that the surface of Pluto, at least in this location, is only something like 500,000 years old, at least. So, you know, that's, that's, that's cool in itself. It's yeah. really not a dead... Um, dead planet it's or dead not, dwarf planet. It's not. It's not, a, it's not a cold lump of rock in the sense that the moon is. It's a dynamic thing. Mm. And then if we go down into what could be possibly creating those dunes, you need three things to happen to create a sand dune. This is all really interesting. Yeah. I learned a lot about sand or dunes in general <laughs> from, from reading this article. You need three things to happen. You need to have an atmosphere that's going to be dense enough to create your wind, which it wasn't actually obvious that Pluto would have that. No. No, I mean, that's if you had asked me yesterday before I read this paper, because I do my homework, um, if you'd said to me, does Pluto have an atmosphere as a non-Pluto expert and non-astronomer, I would have said, don't be stupid. You know, <laughs> the moon doesn't have much of an atmosphere. Not much, no. no. I mean, tiny little bit. Tiny, tiny, yeah. So I would have thought, "There's you got Buckley's chance. There's no way that, that Pluto's got an atmosphere. And yet, apparently it does. Yeah, it's got Not an atmosphere. Not much of an atmosphere. Not much. But enough. But it's enough, and it's dense enough, and it's dense enough because you have to have wind, mm -hmm. and you have to have stuff blowing around to have wind. Yeah, so it's not this this incredibly fine, you know, vapor like atmosphere that that just isn't you know isn't doing anything. It's enough to actually blow around. Yeah, it's not this extreme winds that you get on some of the really you know like Venus and Jupiter. It's not these big blasting winds. In fact, the wind speed they've calculated from these dunes is actually really modest. It's about the same as on Earth. Yeah, I so read. ten meters per second, which is thirty-six kilometers per hour. I now, frequently see that as a, a number when I'm observing. But if you were standing on the surface of Pluto, you might not actually feel that because the atmosphere is was i reading a hundred thousand times less dense than yeah, on earth yeah so it may be moving around at the same speeds but there's a heck of a lot less of it yeah exactly and that's why it's sort of possible to go at a, a higher speed as well sure yeah. sure but it is there and mm. it's enough to move around the tiny particles which are on the surface and those tiny particles are what i mean it's not it's not sand yeah, so that comes to our second condition. Okay. You need these particles, so you need it to be dry. 
because if the if it's kind of wet or at least wet, not wet in the sense of water but wet enough that the particles are going to start to melt a little bit and stick together and then, form bigger lumps yeah yeah then you're not going to be able to lift them off the surface and push them around right so they've got to be small and they've got to be dry yeah that's not actually so surprising that a lot of these very very cold places are very dry um well, think about antarctica on our planet it's an yeah. incredibly dry place uh so, it's technically a desert yeah which is weird but true yeah. yeah, yeah. So Pluto's not really, that doesn't surprise us. We thought that, that might actually okay, be the case. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and we also got to get these particles up off the ground. Right, this is number three. Yeah, this is a little bit trickier. So you can't just have the wind sort of push, because the particles will stick to one another um, just through kind of like a similar process to surface tension. They're kind of just attracted to each other. And the wind might not be quite strong enough to just blow them around willy-nilly. So we need to get these particles up off the surface. Um, and that's probably done through sublimation. Okay. Again, another technical word. So yeah. sublimation, what are we talking about? So this is the process where you have a solid that goes to a gas basically instantaneously without sort of bypassing that middle phase, which is going to a liquid. Right. So normally a solid would melt and turn into a liquid and the liquid would boil and turn into a gas. But sublimation is skipping out that step in the middle and just going, I'm a solid. No, I'm a gas. I'm a gas. No, I'm a solid. And just jumping directly yeah. between them, which you can do under certain conditions with certain types of materials. Yep. You know, it depends on the temperature and the pressure and the type of material, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. And you can do it on Pluto uh, if when you have the sun, because although being incredibly far away, the sun is still in the sky and Pluto, it's still bright and it still has a temperature impact, especially as Pluto rotates around. So when the when that sort of part of Pluto comes into the sunlight, you might get a bit of sublimation of these um, methane uh, ices coming up and then reforming and the wind sort of blowing them around in the meantime. So the sublimation, the turning of the solid into the gas is enough to, to blow some of these tiny grains up yeah. off the ground. Yeah, it gives them a sort of enough energy to, right. to be pushed around. And then these incredibly thin but modestly moving winds can blow them around. Yeah. And so you can then have the processes to form the dunes. Mm. Yeah, so these winds are probably coming down off these icy mountains and pushing the dunes, and they're all sort of aligned up in, in a way that you'd expect from those. And the the sizes of the dunes can actually tell you a little bit about what the um, grains, if you like, of these dunes are made of. Um, I think sort of weirdly coincidentally in some ways, they are similar grain size to sand on Earth. You go all the way to the other end of the solar system and find stuff that looks awkwardly similar to what we yeah, find here. Yeah. I mean, that's really cool. Yeah. So there's some beautiful pictures of some dunes in China um, in the in the science paper that this um, that they published the research in that are very very similar to the structures that you can see on Pluto. Okay, so we've got this amazing new picture just in the last couple of years. You know, it took us ten years to get out there, but it was worth it. Because oh, we've yeah. just got so much data about this about this tiny little lump on the on the distant far flung reaches of the solar system. So is that it? Are we we done with Pluto now? I don't think so. No, no way. Goodness no way. me, no. So what's next? Well, uh, so of course we've got still got lots of data from New Horizons to analyze. It's only we only got it a couple of years ago, and you, you can pour over every image and find every available piece of information in there. So we're going to see more just from the New Horizons missions. Now, the problem is after that, mm-hmm. we don't actually have any missions planned to Pluto. Aww. 
I mean, fingers crossed that the um, results from the New Horizons probe are really going to spur our scientific interest. I think they already have. Um, so we're looking at proposals for the next what they call decadal survey by NASA. This is when NASA chooses all the missions it's going to do in the next 10 years. Right. Um, I'd be very surprised if there isn't a Pluto mission that goes um, as part of that. Maybe not just to Pluto mm-hmm. because you kind of got to get as much bang for your buck as you can. And if you're going to, yeah, if you're going to go all that way, you're going to be passing, ideally, a few other places along the way, particularly if you need a little bit of a, a slingshot up to get out to Pluto a little bit faster and go around some of the other planets. So, yeah, it would be it would be a part of a, of a broader mission. Yeah, so we'd have some lots. New Horizons itself is actually carrying on. It's, um, I think, the fifth object that we have sent that has left our solar system for some definition that you might have of solar system. Um, but anyway, it's heading off to a Kuiper Belt object. Now, this one has not got such a nice name as Pluto. Right. It's called 2014 MU69. Yep. Yep. (laughs) But, I mean, I guess if you've found all of these things out there in the belt that, you know, you can't name all of them, that's starting to get crazy. So you just got to go with the catalogue name. Fine. Um, I'm sure we'll think of something nice before it gets there. But Mm -hmm. it's going to be there on New Year's Day uh, 2019. Oh, cool. That's not far away at all. No. So we're going to get to see some new pictures of another Kuiper Belt object, another potentially dwarf planet. Will that be the first time we've done that? I think so. I think so. We might have have something from Voyager. but Mm. We should look that up. We'll we'll get back to you on that one. But yeah, that's going to be cool. And that's only like seven months away. Six months away. So in case you didn't need another reason to party on New Year. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's what we'll be doing. We'll be popping the champagne and then checking out Twitter feed and (laughs) (laughs) looking for photos. Although, how long does it take? How long does it take an image to come back from... From something out there in the in the Kuiper Belt. So, well, we can approximate it by saying that light from the sun takes about five and a half six hours to get to Pluto. So, basically, what we're sending back is light. So, about mm. the same. Depends where Pluto exactly is in yeah. its orbit and uh, where the um, probe New Horizons is. So, exactly. we, we might be nursing a little bit of a New Year's Day hangover by the time it gets back to. Us. Yeah, yeah. They they didn't say whether it's January the first um, uh, British time or. Oh, that's Otherwise. a point. Yeah. Anyway, a roundabout. Yeah. It's look, going to be pretty yeah, Let's not get too hung up yeah. on it. <laughs> so we have gone from, in the space of a, a fairly short period of time, to having a, an incredibly pixelated picture of this far-flung lump, which we've demoted from planet status to dwarf planet status, to now, you know, high-resolution photographic images of a lump which has incredible surface dynamics. It's got an atmosphere. It's got wind. It's got dunes. We've come a long way with Pluto. I think it's fair to say. Definitely, yeah. And actually, there's a really nice quote that I um, wrote down here from Patrick Moore, the astronomer. Famous astronomer. Famous, famous. I love Patrick Moore. And, And this is in 1955. He wrote about Pluto, and I quote, Plunged in everlasting dusk, silent, barren, and touched with the chill of death. See, now that's, you know, that's not mucking around. Yeah. He's talking about... God the, of the, the underworld. Yeah, sort of he's talking stuff. about God yeah. of the underworld. But he's also talking about that, that, that sort of earlier image of that, that I had in my mind, which is that Pluto is this cold lump of rock, you know, that, that, there's, that there's just nothing there, which is what you, what you might expect for something so small so far away. 
But that's not what we've seen. No, no. And there's a really uh, contrast this with a quote from Professor Hayes at Cornell, who now says that Pluto is uh, a quote, geologically diverse and dynamic, world, a world driven by internal heat, extreme seasons and sublimation. Do you know what? I think the Pluto fans have got something after all. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Syzygy. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, then as ever, it really helps us out if you if you tell us that. And the best way you can tell us that is by leaving a review, some stars, a couple of words, a big thumbs up on your podcast directory of choice, whether that's the Apple podcast directory on iTunes or whether it's through any of the other directories that you can find. You can also come and find us on our website, syzygy.fm. That's S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y dot F-M. And there's a form there that you can contact us and send us through your comments, your queries, any questions that you send to us. We'll try to come up with a decent answer and we might include it on a future episode, depending on whether or not we can figure it out for ourselves. Um, you can also catch us on Twitter. Yes, uh, that's S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y again. And uh, No, it's not. Syzygy Pod. It's Syzygy Pod, so. Yes. Yes, yes. I knew that. You knew, you knew, I, knew that. I knew that. Yeah, because you check Twitter all the time. I do, actually. It's, yeah. It's the best way to get NASA stuff. Straight out of that. It's, that's great. Yeah, so we're um, at Syzygy Pod. Yeah. Twitter. That's right. And actually, I wanted to mention before we, get, we left today that the Syzygy logo, uh, we'll put a link to the uh, original photograph that New Horizons took. Now, this is a photograph it took after it had visited Pluto, turned around and took a picture of Pluto with the sun behind it. Ooh. Actually looks a little bit similar oh, to our nice. logo. Okay. Yeah, yep. Looking really forward nice. to that. That'll be good. We'll put that one in the show notes. Um, and you can find all sorts of information about the, uh, the things that we talk about in the show notes. And those of you who are listening to this on uh, a, a special subset of all the podcast players that you can find out there, some of them you may have noticed we actually have pictures along the way as well. So if you're missing out on that side of the podcast, the enhanced image side of the podcast, maybe go and check out whether or not your podcast player can do chapter images. That's all I'll, that's all I'll say for now. A little treat for you to find out if you haven't seen them before. Uh, the podcast is produced by me, Chris Stewart, here in the palatial studios that we have, the podcast studios here at the University of York. It's actually Emily's office. But it's, you know, it's nice and comfy. It's a nice place. I put a picture of this in the show notes. We'll have a look. Um, <laughs> and where Emily is, of course, the director of Astro Campus. Yes, here. yeah, at the University of York. Yeah, so thank you to the University of York for, uh, for giving us the time and space to do that. But speaking of time and space, we're out. So it's time for us to head off. We will catch you for the next episode of Syzygy in... I don't know, a week or so, thereabouts. Yep. See you next time. Yes, indeed. Bye for now.